0: Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 29 to 31 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. In the last episode, Levin returned home to his farm, and Anna was suddenly called away from Moscow. Tonight's story will be one of strange dreams, surprise visitors, and sudden realizations. First, let's make sure we're ready to fall asleep. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy, be it in a chair, in your bed, or elsewhere. And rest your body in whatever way feels most relaxed sitting up, laying down, eyes open, or eyes closed. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So while you're on your path to sleep tonight, all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So now, Let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 29. Come, it's all over, and thank God, was the first thought that came to Anna Arkadyevna when she had said goodbye for the last time to her brother, who had stood blocking up the entrance to the carriage till the third bell rang. She sat down on her lounge beside Anushka and looked about her in the twilight of the sleeping carriage. Thank God. Tomorrow I shall see Serozia and Alexei Alexandrovich, and my life will go on in the old way, all nice and usual." Still in the same anxious frame of mind as she had been all day, Anna took pleasure in arranging herself for the journey with great care. With her little deft hands, she opened and shut her little red bag, took out a cushion, laid it on her knees and carefully wrapping up her feet, settled herself comfortably. An invalid lady had already laid down to sleep. Two other ladies began talking to Anna, and a stout elderly lady tucked up her feet and made observations about the heating of the train. Anna answered a few words, but not foreseeing any entertainment from the conversation. She asked Anushka to get a lamp, hooked it onto the arm of her seat, and took from her bag a paper knife and an English novel. At first, her reading made no progress. The fuss and bustle were disturbing. Then, when the train had started, she could not help listening to the noises, then the snow beating on the left window and sticking to the pane and the sight of the muffled guard passing by, covered with snow on one side, and the conversations about the terrible snowstorm raging outside, distracted her attention. Farther on, it was continually the same again and again, the same shaking and rattling, the same snow on the window, the same rapid transition from steaming heat to the cold and back again to heat, the same passing glimpses of the same figures in the twilight, and the same voices, and Anna began to read and understand what she read. Anushka was already dozing, the red bag on her lap clutched by her broad hands in gloves of which one was torn. Anna Arkadyevna read and understood. But it was distasteful to her to read. That is, to follow the reflection of other people's lives. She had too great a desire to live herself. If she read that the heroine of the novel was nursing a sick man, she longed to move with noiseless steps about the room of a sick man. If she read of a member of parliament making a speech, she longed to be delivering the speech. If she read of how Lady Mary had ridden after the hounds, and how had provoked her sister-in-law, and had surprised everyone by her boldness, she too wished to be doing the same. But there was no chance of doing anything, and twisting the smooth paper knife in her little hands, she forced herself to read. The hero of the novel was already almost reaching his English happiness, A baronetcy and an estate, and Anna was feeling a desire to go with him to the estate, when she suddenly felt that he ought to feel ashamed, and that she was ashamed of the same thing. But what had he to be ashamed of? What have I to be ashamed of? She asked herself, in injured surprise. She laid down the book and sank against the back of the chair, tightly gripping the paper cutter in both hands. There was nothing. She went over all her Moscow recollections. All were good, pleasant. She remembered the ball, remembered Vronsky and his face of slavish adoration, remembered all her conduct with him. There was nothing shameful. And for all that, at the same point in her memories, The feeling of shame was intensified, as though some inner voice, just at the point when she thought of Fronsky, was saying to her, warm, very warm, hot. Well, what is it? She said to herself resolutely, shifting her seat in the lounge. What does it mean? Am I afraid to look it straight in the face? Why? What is it? Can it be that between me and this officer boy there exist, or can exist, any other relations than such are common with every acquaintance? She laughed contemptuously and took up her book again, but now she was definitely unable to follow what she read. She passed the paper knife over the windowpane, then laid its smooth, cool surface to her cheek, and almost laughed aloud at the feeling of delight that all at once, without cause, came over her. She felt as though her nerves were strings being strained tighter and tighter on some sort of screwing peg. She felt her eyes opening wider and wider, her fingers and toes twitching nervously, something within oppressing her breathing while all shapes and sounds seemed in the uncertain half-light to strike her with an unaccustomed vividness. Moments of doubt were continually coming upon her, when she was uncertain whether the train were going forwards or backwards, or was standing still altogether, whether it were Anushka at her side, or a stranger. What's that on the arm of the chair? a fur cloak or some beast and what am i myself myself or some other woman she was afraid of giving away to this delirium but something drew her towards it and she could yield to it or resist it at will she got up to rouse herself and slipped off her plaid and the cape of her warm dress for a moment she regained her self-possession and realized that the thin peasant who had come in wearing a long overcoat with buttons missing from it was the stove heater, that he was looking at the thermometer, that it was the wind and snow bursting in after him at the door, but then everything grew blurred again. That peasant with the long waist seemed to be gnawing something on the wall, The old lady began stretching her legs the whole length of the carriage and filling it with a black cloud. Then there was a fearful shrieking and banging, as though someone were being torn to pieces. Then there was a blinding dazzle of red fire before her eyes, and a wall seemed to rise up and hide everything. Anna felt as though she was sinking down, it was not terrible, but delightful. The voice of a man muffled up and covered with snow shouted something in her ear. She got up and pulled herself together. She realized that they had reached a station and that this was the guard. She asked Anushka to hand her the cape she had taken off and her shawl, put them on, and moved towards the door. Do you wish to get out? asked Anushka. Yes, I want a little air. It's very hot in here. And she opened the door. The driving snow and the wind rushed to meet her and struggled with her over the door, but she enjoyed the struggle. She opened the door and went out. The wind seemed as though lying in wait for her, With gleeful whistle it tried to snatch her up and bear her off, but she clung to the cold doorpost, and holding her skirt got down onto the platform and under the shelter of the carriages. The wind had been powerful on the steps, but on the platform, under the lee of the carriages, there was a lull. With enjoyment she drew deep breaths of the frozen, snowy air, and standing near the carriage, looked about the platform and the lighted station. Chapter 30 The raging tempest rushed whistling between the wheels of the carriages, about the scaffolding, and round the corner of the station. The carriages, posts, people, everything that was to be seen was covered with snow, and was getting more and more thickly covered. For a moment there would come a lull in the storm, but then it would swoop down again with such onslaughts that it seemed impossible to stand against it. Meanwhile, men ran to and fro, talking merrily together their steps crackling on the platform as they continually opened and closed the big doors. The bent shadow of a man glided by at her feet, and she heard sounds of hammer upon iron. Hand over that telegram came an angry voice out of the stormy darkness on the other side. This way, number 28, Several different voices shouted again, and muffled figures ran by covered with snow. Two gentlemen with lighted cigarettes passed by her. She drew one more deep breath of the fresh air and had just put her hand out of her muff to take hold of the door and get back into the carriage when another man in military overcoat, quite close beside her, stepped between her and the flickering light of the lamp post. She looked around, and the same instant recognized Vronsky's face. Putting his hand to the peak of his cap, he bowed to her and asked, was there anything she wanted? Could he be of any service to her? She gazed rather a long while at him without answering, and, In spite of the shadow in which he was standing, she saw, or fancied she saw, both the expression of his face and his eyes. It was again the expression of reverential ecstasy which had so worked upon her the day before. More than once she had told herself during the past few days, and again only a few moments before that Vronsky was for her only one of the hundreds of young men, forever exactly the same, that are met everywhere, that she would never allow herself to bestow a thought upon him. But now at the first instant of meeting him, she was seized by a feeling of joyful pride. She had no need to ask why he had come. She knew as certainly as if he had told her that he was here, to be where she was. I didn't know you were going. What are you coming for? She said, letting fall the hand with which she had grasped the doorpost, and irrepressible delight and eagerness shone in her face. What am I coming for? He repeated, looking straight into her eyes. You know that I have come to be where you are, he said. I can't help it. At that moment, the wind, as it were, surmounted all obstacles, sent the snow flying from the carriage roofs, and clanked some sheets of iron it had torn off, while the hoarse whistle of the engine roared in front, plaintively and gloomily. All the awfulness of the storm seemed to her more splendid now. He had said what her soul longed to hear, though she feared it with her reason. She made no answer, and in her face he saw conflict. Forgive me if you dislike what I said, he said humbly. He had spoken courteously, differentially, yet so firmly, so stubbornly, that for a long while she could make no answer. It's wrong, what you say, and I beg you, if you're a good man, to forget what you've said, as I forget it, she said at last. Not one word, not one gesture of yours shall I, could I, ever forget. Enough. Enough, she cried, trying assiduously to give a stern expression to her face, into which he gazed greedily. And clutching at the cold doorpost, she clambered up the steps and got rapidly into the corridor of the carriage. But in the little corridor, she paused, going over in her imagination what had happened, though she could not recall her own words or his, she realized instinctively that the momentary conversation had brought them fearfully closer, and she was panic-stricken and blissful at it. After standing still a few seconds, she went into the carriage and sat down in her place. The overstrained condition which had tormented her before. Did only come back, but was intensified and reached such a pitch that she was afraid every minute that something would snap within her from the excessive tension. She did not sleep all night, but in that nervous tension and in the visions that filled her imagination, there was nothing disagreeable or gloomy. On the contrary, there was something blissful glowing and exhilarating. Towards morning, Anna sank into a doze, sitting in her place, and when she waked, it was daylight and the train was near Petersburg. At once thoughts of home, of husband and of son, and the details of that day and the following came upon her. At Petersburg, as soon as the train stopped, and she got out. The first person that attracted her attention was her husband. Oh, mercy, why do his ears look like that? She thought, looking at his frigid and imposing figure, and especially the ears that struck her at the moment as propping up the brim of his round hat. Catching sight of her, he came to meet her his lips falling into their habitual, sarcastic smile, and his big, tired eyes looking straight at her. An unpleasant sensation gripped at her heart when she met his obstinate and weary glance, as though she had expected to see him different. She was especially struck by the feeling of dissatisfaction with herself that she experienced on meeting him. That feeling was an intimate, familiar feeling, like a consciousness of hypocrisy which she experienced in her relations with her husband. But hitherto she had not taken note of the feeling. Now she was clearly and painfully aware of it. Yes, as you see, your tender spouse as devoted as the first year after marriage, burned with impatience to see you," he said in his deliberate, high-pitched voice, and in that tone which he almost always took with her, a tone of jeering at anyone who should say in earnest what he said. Is Sayoza quite well? she asked. And is this all the reward? said he, for my he's quite well. Chapter 31 Vronsky had not even tried to sleep all that night. He sat in his armchair, looking straight before him or scanning the people who got in and out. If he had indeed on previous occasions struck and impressed people who did not know him by his air of unhesitating composure. He seemed now more haughty and self-possessed than ever. He looked at people as if they were things. A nervous young man, a clerk in a law court sitting opposite him, hated him for that look. The young man asked him for a light and entered into conversation with him and even pushed against him, to make him feel that he was not a thing, but a person. But Vronsky gazed at him exactly as he did at the lamp, and the young man made a wry face, feeling that he was losing his self-possession under the oppression of this refusal to recognize him as a person. Vronsky saw nothing and no one. He felt himself a king, Not because he believed that he had made an impression on Anna. He did not yet believe that. But because the impression she had made on him gave him happiness and pride. What would come of it all he did not know. He did not even think. He felt that all his forces, hitherto dissipated, wasted, were centered on one thing and bent with fearful energy on one blissful goal. And he was happy at that, he knew only that he had told her the truth, that he had come where she was, that all the happiness of his life, the only meaning in life for him, now lay in seeing and hearing her. And when he got out of the carriage at Boladova to get some seltzer water, and caught sight of Anna. Involuntarily, his first word had told her just what he thought, and he was glad he had told her it, that she knew it now and was thinking of it. He did not sleep all night. When he was back in the carriage, he kept unceasingly going over every position in which he had seen her, every word she had uttered, before his fancy, making his heart faint with emotion, floating pictures of a possible future. When he got out of the train at Petersburg, he felt after his sleepless night as keen and fresh as after a cold bath. He paused near his compartment, waiting for her to get out. Once more, he said to himself, smiling unconsciously. Once more I shall see her walk, her face. She will say something, turn her head, glance, smile maybe. But before he caught sight of her, he saw her husband, whom the station master was deferentially escorting through the crowd. Ah yes, the husband. Only now, for the first time, did Vronsky realise clearly the fact that there was a person attached to her, a husband. He knew that she had a husband, but had hardly believed in his existence, and only now fully believed in him, with his head and shoulders, and his legs clad in black trousers especially when he saw this husband calmly take her arm with a sense of property seeing alexei alexandrovich with his petersburg face and severely self-confident figure in his round hat with his rather prominent spine he believed in him and was aware of a disagreeable sensation such as a man might feel tortured by thirst, who, on reaching a spring, should find a dog, a sheep, or a pig who has drunk of it and muddied the water. Alexey Alexandrovich's manner of walking, with a swing of the hips and flat feet, particularly annoyed Vronsky. He could recognize in no one but himself an indubitable right to love her, But she was still the same, and the sight of her affected him the same way, physically reviving him, stirring him, and filling his soul with rapture. He told his German valet, who ran up to him from the second class, to take his things and go on, and he himself went up to her. He saw the first meeting between the husband and wife and noted with a lover's insight the sign of slight reserve with which she spoke to her husband. No, she does not love him, and cannot love him, he decided to himself. At the moment when he was approaching Anna Arkadyevna, he noticed too with joy that she was conscious of his being near, and looked round, and seeing him, turned again to her husband. Have you passed a good night? he asked, bowing to her and her husband together, and leaving it up to Alexey Alexandrovich to accept the bow on his own account, and to recognise it or not as he might see fit. Thank you, very good, she answered. Her face looked weary and there was not that play of eagerness in it, peeping out in her smile and her eyes. But for a single instant, as she glanced at him, there was a flash of something in her eyes, and although the flash died away at once, he was happy for that moment. She glanced at her husband to find out whether he knew Vronsky. Alexei Alexandrovich looked at Vronsky with displeasure vaguely recalling who this was. Vronsky's composure and self-confidence here struck, like a scythe against a stone, upon the cold self-confidence of Alexey Alexandrovich. Count Vronsky, said Anna. Ah, we are acquainted, I believe, said Alexey Alexandrovich, indifferently giving his hand. You set off with the mother, "'And you return with the sun,' he said, "'articulating each syllable, "'as though each were a separate favour he was bestowing. "'You're back from leaving, I suppose,' he said, "'and without waiting for a reply, "'he returned to his wife in his jesting tone. "'Well, were a great many tears shed at Moscow at parting. "'By addressing his wife like this,' He gave Vronsky to understand that he wished to be left alone, and, turning slightly towards him, he touched his hat, but Vronsky turned to Anna Arkadziewicz. "'I hope I may have the honour of calling on you,' he said. Alexey Alexandrovich glanced with his weary eyes at Vronsky. "'Delighted,' he said coldly. On Mondays we are at home. Most fortunate, he said to his wife, dismissing Vronsky altogether, that I should have half an hour to meet you, so that I can prove my devotion, he went on in the same jesting tone. You lay too much stress on your devotion to me to value it much, she responded in the same jesting tone. Involuntarily listening to the sound of Vronsky's steps behind them. But what has it to do with me? she said to herself, and she began asking her husband how Sorosia had got on without her. Oh, capitally. Mariette says he has been very good, and I must disappoint you, but he has not missed you as your husband has. But once more, Merci, my dear, for giving me a day. Our dear samovar will be delighted. He used to call the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, well known in society, a samovar, because she was always bubbling over with excitement. She has been continually asking after you, and do you know, if I may venture to advise you, you should go and see her today. You know how she takes everything to heart. Just now, with all her cares, she's anxious about the Oblinskys being brought together. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna was a friend of her husband's and the center of that one of the Cotiers of Petersburg world with which Anna was, through her husband, in the closest relations. But you know I wrote to her Still, she'll want to hear details. Go and see her, if you're not too tired, my dear. Well, Kondrati will take you in the carriage while I go to my committee. I shall not be alone at dinner again. Alexei Alexandrovich went on, no longer in a sarcastic tone. You wouldn't believe how I've missed you. And with a long pressure of her hand and a meaning smile, he put her in the carriage.